Listener Production. Hello, you are listening to The Briefing. Today is Tuesday, July 6th. Jan Fran with you here and with me is Annika Smithhurst. What's on the show today, Annika? Morning, Jan. On today's briefing, this is an incredibly painful story and one suggested to us by one of our listeners. There was always stories of kids going missing or seeing kids be beaten, kids just disappearing like they all go to bed, they wake up one day and somebody's bed is empty. Yeah, this is a massive story that is unfolding in Canada. Hundreds of unmarked graves discovered at the sites of former residential schools for Indigenous children. You're going to hear from someone who attended one of those schools. You're going to find out what it means for a country like Canada reckoning with its colonial past in many ways um, similar to the way that we are. That is today's briefing. First, though, let's hear what's making news today. Former federal Liberal MP Julia Banks says ongoing inquiries into the workplace culture at Parliament House aren't going to make it a safer place to work for women. This ducking and weaving and saying we don't have tolerance for this sort of behaviour, you actually have to show real action. Morrison's response to it has not been what other workplace where you'd have to make the tough calls. So that was Julia Banks speaking to ABC 730 there. Now, she's been in the news a fair bit over the last few days because last week she alleged that she had been inappropriately touched by a male cabinet minister back in 2017. And she's described this sexist, you know, very outdated culture within Parliament House in a new book that she's written. Ms Banks, who left the Liberal Party to sit as an independent before resigning from Parliament at the last election, also told the ABC she was not surprised when she heard Brittany Higgins's story. What has cascaded out of our federal parliament house now, um, you know, since March, since Brittany Higgins, there are a lot of similarities um, and a lot of things that have happened that is no surprise to me. Julia Banks hasn't named the individual who um, allegedly inappropriately touched her. She says that she fears that she could still face consequences if she does. No doubt the rumour mill will continue to spin around that. Um, There is at the moment an inquiry or a review happening into Parliament House's workplace culture. This is being run by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins and it was sort of kicked off in the wake of the Brittany Higgins scandal um, which unfolded earlier this year. What is happening with that inquiry, Annika, do you know? Yeah, they're taking, they're asking anyone that's worked in Parliament House, if you have and you're listening and you want to contribute, whether you've been a journal or a staffer or a politician, you can uh, contribute to this review. Uh, It's all available online. We won't be hearing from it until November when the report is expected to be published. I think expectations do need to be managed though, and perhaps that's what Julia Banks was talking about. This isn't going to be making findings about individuals, about bullying or about sexual harassment. And this goes some way to what you know, the limits of the government could do. Parliament's a really funny workplace. It's not a normal place. You can't just get fired for doing things. You know, the Prime Minister has dealt with the sort of 70 or 80 so politicians that get elected. They get elected in different seats across Australia. They all rock up in Canberra. That's the team he gets. He doesn't get to hire and fire as, say, you would if you headed a bank. He can pick his best team to go into Cabinet and he can make decisions on that level. But there's no real way 
to sack an MP, mm. um, they're sort of stuck with them. So it is a very different workplace. Staff are different. They can be sacked and there are issues around how they are sometimes moved on and um, I guess take the fall for their bosses. So hopefully the inquiry looks into that. I do wonder though how much of an election issue this will really be. And the New South Wales government has uh, slammed the hosts of illegal parties in Sydney and this was after the NRL handed down some pretty severe penalties to the Dragons players caught attending an illegal gathering. It's disappointing when anybody does the wrong thing. It doesn't matter what your profession is. Uh, It's just disappointing because every time somebody knowingly does the wrong thing, it jeopardises all the rest of us. Premier Gladys Berejiklian speaking there. 13 Dragons players were yesterday fined up to $50,000 each, all up forking out $305,000. That's a lot of money. They've also been suspended for at least one game after they were found to have breached COVID protocols by attending the party. Did I notice a little smile in your voice reading that, Annika? That is a lot of money. What were they thinking? (laughs) Expensive party. Expensive party. Probably not (laughs) worth it, I reckon. Um, The league says that the Dragons prop Paul Vaughan invited 12 teammates to his home. This was in an area south of Sydney on Saturday. He's copped the biggest fine. $50,000. It's been revealed recently returned player Jack DeBellin was also at the party on Saturday and was among those hiding in cupboards and under beds as police raided the property. Yeah, this is, it's not the only party that the authorities are looking into either. There was a party held at a Sydney apartment block. This was the night that the city went into lockdown, so uh, Saturday last week, uh, and it's already led to three cases. Meanwhile, Sydney's in its second week of 14-day lockdown, but residents there are still going to have to wait a few more days before they find out if it's going to be extended. Jan, how's your mental health? Look, I think it's okay. I'm like, if it needs to be extended, it's extended. If, you know, restrictions ease this Friday as planned, then that's good too. I've stopped sort of worrying too much about it and stopped getting too much in the weeds and just, Mm. you know, try to listen to the health experts as much as possible. Looking around the world, like the UK, for example, this was something that Boris Johnson announced um, just overnight, that by July 19th, most, if not all, COVID restrictions will be lifted. People don't need to wear a mask. They don't need to social distance. They can kind of come and go as they pleased. You know, this is a country that recorded almost... 28,000 cases in just 24 hours, right? So the difference is vaccination. And us aiming for zero, and they're clearly not aiming for zero, but one of the reasons that they can not aim for zero is because they've got 86% of their adult population have received at least one dose of the vaccine and 64% are fully vaccinated. They're really big numbers and that's what's allowed the UK to move around a lot. So for me, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking small at the moment, do whatever the health experts say, but bigger picture, (laughs) God, I'd really like us to get vaccinated so we can open up. We'll really have to change our thinking though, Jan, just getting around the idea that there's 20 something cases. There will be cases even when we all get vaccinated, but hopefully people don't die and don't get hospitalised. That's what we're aiming for. And former inspectors from Victoria's gaming regulator have alleged that they were prevented from investigating money laundering at Melbourne's Crown Casino. A lot of the things that we would uh, report up the chain of any sort of criminal activity just disappeared into oblivion. We never heard anything further about it. I felt that Crown were running our office. When they wanted things changed, things got changed. Peter McCormack speaking to the ABC's Four Corners there. 
A number of former inspectors from the Victorian Commission of Gaming and Liquor Regulation have recently told the ABC and nine newspapers they witnessed illegal activity at the casino. Yeah, now there's a Royal Commission into Crown's suitability to hold a casino licence. That's continuing in Victoria. And this was after a New South Wales state government report found that the company had facilitated money laundering. I wonder what the future holds for Crown. Yeah, there was some pretty serious allegations in that four corners last night and a lot of them squared at not just the current state government, previous state governments about almost the level of protection provided. There was a number of ministers that spoke off the record saying it's just known that within the party room you don't do anything to sort of annoy Crown Casino. I think the game's changed now. When you're having a royal commission, Mm. there's going to be very little political protection uh, the government can provide. And it also gives them something to hide behind for a few months, though. Whenever we ask questions about this, they say, we can't talk about it at the moment. It's before a royal commission. So I don't think we'll be getting some huge response today from the state government down here in Victoria. But hopefully some of these issues will come out in the wash as we get through this royal commission. And to Wimbledon, where Aussie tennis star Ash Barty has made it through to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon for the first time. Huzzah! Yay! God, I love her. She's such a good ambassador for Australia. The world number one ended the winning streak of Czech Barbaroba Krejcikova overnight, beating her in straight sets. Yes! Yes. Also, there's another Australian, Isla Tamjanovic, who is playing the round of 16 as we speak, depending on when you are listening to this podcast. She may or may not also make it to the quarterfinals. So we have two Australian women in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, potentially. You know, I feel like tennis, tennis having a moment. Nick Kyrgios, I mean, he's out, but, you know, he was there. We've got some some young guns, up-and-comers. It's awesome, isn't it? Not great for everybody, though. The Duchess of Cambridge was forced into isolation. Now, she went to the tennis and she came into contact with someone who had COVID. So she is in isolation for the next 10 days. Oh, you win some, you lose some at Wimbledon, don't you? All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to bring you this incredibly important story coming out of Canada. The idea for today's briefing has come from one of our listeners, Joanna from Sydney. Hi, guys. My name's Joanna. Really interested if you could please look into the story of the recently discovered children's bodies in the boarding schools in Canada. Just my kids are asking questions, looking at the story, wondering if there's any similarities with what went on here with the stolen generation and um, possibly what they're doing about it over there to discover what's going on with the church involvement and what happened to these children. Joanna, first of all, thank you so much for suggesting this story. It's a big one and it's a really important one too. And if you are hearing it for the first time, in the last few weeks, hundreds of unmarked graves have been discovered at the sites of former residential schools for Indigenous children in Canada. In May, the remains of 215 children, some as young as three years old, were found at a residential school in British Columbia. And late last month, authorities discovered 751 unmarked graves at a former residential school in Saskatchewan. Here's the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, delivering his Canada Day address on July the 1st. We, as Canadians, must be honest with ourselves about our history. Because in order to chart a new and better path forward, we have to recognise the terrible mistakes of our past. 
Between 1840 and 1990, 150,000 Indigenous children were taken from their homes and families by the Canadian government and placed into these residential schools, many of which were run by Christian churches. A report by Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015 found horrific physical abuse, rape, malnutrition and other atrocities occurred at these residential schools. Kerry Banjo was sent to one of these schools in Saskatchewan for grades 11 and 12. She went to one of the schools in the late 1980s. She's now a journalist with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Um, She joins us now. Kerry, you went to one of these schools. Can you tell us what it was like? I had to attend the residential school because there was no high school on my reserve. So I had to leave my mom and I spent pretty much the entire school year at school. So it was lonely. It was not as traumatic as my parents' time. It still impacted me in the fact that I lost connection with my my biological family. I lost connection with my community because once I attended the school, I never returned because right after I graduated, I went off to university. So I never returned home. And in many ways, was that the aim of these schools initially through taking First Nations children away from their parents and making them assimilate? Can you give us a bit of a history of how these schools evolved? The one I attended was one of the first three started by Canada. There was three of them. And uh, the one located in Labret, Saskatchewan was one of the three opened in 1884. There was generations of this that happened because my school operated for 114 years. I'm the fourth in my family to attend a residential school. Like my great-grandparents went, my grandparents went, my parents went, I went. And so it just became part of what was expected. You know, that was our school system. It wasn't until much later when I went into university and studied Indigenous studies that I realized the full impact of residential schools. And I started to see how the system was impacting not only me, but everybody from my generation. Mm. There was a reason why we became the have-nots in the country, why we were like on the lowest scale where racism was so blatant and bold and acceptable. You were saying that you didn't really learn about the history of Canada and you didn't really realise the impact that these schools had on you until much later in life because it's becoming very clear that they were mired in a terrible and unjust history, particularly given some of the recent discoveries. Kerry, what do we know about the unmarked graves that have been discovered? There was always stories, always stories of kids going missing or seeing kids be beaten, kids just disappearing, like they all go to bed, they wake up one day and somebody's bed is empty and, you know, they're just little kids. And so they didn't ask questions, but there was always these stories that kids that just went away or some of them actually seen kids be killed. Um, Some actually participated in like having to dig the graves and you know, lay the kids to rest. It opens a lot of old wounds and it's very traumatic, not only for me, it's very traumatic for Canadians because, you know, there's so many people that, like me, had no idea of this history. So now that the 
graves are being uncovered. I think we're at three or four residential schools. There were 139 federally operated residential schools. I heard estimates that we can expect to find between 20 and 25,000. That was just from another person that was was wow. talking just based on stories and history and our population and demographics. So, And the sad thing is so many of those children that are buried in those graves, we might not ever know their name because a lot of children entered school and they immediately lost all rights and became a ward of the state. So the priest who acted as principal had full authority to change that child's first and last name. Although these bodies are being found, we might never know who they are. What were the families told at the time when they never saw the children again? Why did it take so long for this to be uncovered? These stories aren't new. Parents would just, you know, they'd wait and their children would never return. In some cases, because of the isolation of the communities, some children will be taken when they're four or five and they stay at those schools until they age out at like 17 and 18. And so these parents, that was it. Once their children were taken, they never seen them again. And if their names were changed, and if these children lost that connection with their family, like a four-year-old's not going to remember exactly where their homeland is. So this idea of parents having any right or any control or any voice to even question or even wonder, you have to put yourself in that situation where they have no one to turn to. That's just the way it is. Their children are gone and a lot of them never knew what happened to their children, whether or not they went off and started a new life somewhere else or whether or not they died in that school or whether or not they were moved to another province. That continued right into the 70s. I know people that talk about being taken from their home, put in a school and not being able to see their mom until they, they were old enough. And that was just how it was. Who made these discoveries and and why is it happening now? It was communities that knew these stories and communities and organizations that invested the money and the time to try and find these children. They had to do it themselves. And so only when these discoveries were made and it became public, there was interest from the rest of Canada because you know, this whole residential school system, it came to light again. And so people began asking questions and the more people became curious, the more public pressure has forced more action. What's been the response from the church and the government to the discoveries? Many churches have acknowledged their involvement in in these schools. However, the Catholic church has never apologized. And that's what a lot of people are upset about because the Catholic Church ran the majority of um, Indian residential schools, and yet they refuse to acknowledge their part in this genocide of Indigenous people. Because this is not a new story. This has been a story we've had for so many generations. But now that the world is watching, action is happening. So I'm hopeful. 
That was Carrie Benjo. She's a journalist from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and she's a former residential school student. I want to go back to our listener, Joanna, who first suggested that we look into this story. Joanna wanted to know what similarities exist between Canada and Australia, given our colonial histories and our assimilation policies. Fiona Cornforth is the Chief Executive Officer of the Healing Foundation. She works with members and descendants of the stolen generation to overcome intergenerational trauma. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us. Now, First Nations people across Australia are mourning with Canadian First Nations families. What parallels do you see between the treatment of Australian Indigenous communities and the First Nations people of Canada? Well, children, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, have been taken away from their families since the start of colonisation in Australia. They've been stolen, taken for labour and removed from safe, loving and nurturing families through government policies of the day. This is an important part of truth-telling for our country, but this is very similar to what's happened for other First Nations children and families across the globe. We also had Indigenous children that were taken and put in quite similar residential schools. Is that right? Absolutely. It really does make you reflect on where we are on our journey of truth-telling and acknowledging true history. We know now that one in three of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were either removed or had a parent that was removed. And so the trauma in our communities is huge. It's a trauma burden that we never had a choice in carrying and it's unresolved and unaddressed. Canada is working towards its own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. How important is it as part of that truth and reconciliation process to hear the words, I'm sorry? Well, when former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said sorry and on behalf of governments, that was quite powerful. And for a lot of our communities, our children are still being removed at alarming rates. You know, and they were criminalised as well from the age of 10 and we make up too many of the numbers in detention and in prison. So it's become another moment where we reflect on whether enough is being done to ensure these things don't happen again. And unfortunately for many of our communities, it's, you know, the answer is quite clear that in many cases, things are getting worse. Fiona Cornforth there, she's the CEO of the Healing Foundation. And this just seems like a story that sadly we might be hearing more of given how many residential schools there are in Canada and how they've only really just started looking into a very small handful of them. All right, that is it for today's show. Tomorrow on The Briefing, are you in your 30s? Are you a chuggy person? Well, tomorrow's show is for you. We're going to take a look at the trials and tribulations of hitting the big 3-0 and above. Hope you can join us. See you then. Listener.